There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. You know, ever since we started Born Ready to Pod, people have been asking us for advice. Usually it's how many games will the Pacers or insert NBA team here will win this season. The truth is, I don't know. But if you think you know, you got to go check out my bookie. Remember, who you're betting on is just as important as who you're betting with. That's why I always tell people to bet with my bookie. Trust me, guys, they are your best bet this season. They've been in business for years, have great reviews online, and their mobile site is easy to use. I would only recommend a service to my listeners that's been good to us. And that's why I'm urging you to make your way to my bookie. You win, they pay. They have in-game, live betting, the most rewarding player perks in the business, and for you fantasy guys out there, you can even bet the over-under on how many fantasy points a player will score in each game. Join now, and MyBookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar. Use promo code READY to activate your offer. Visit MyBookie online today. That's M-Y-B-O-O-K-I-E. And don't forget to use the promo code READY. That's R-E-A-D-Y, when creating your account to claim up to $1,000 in free play. You play, you win, you get paid. O'Neal the rebound. Kevin Alley brings it up. Throws it across. Miller for three. Oh, he backed it in. He backed it in. And the game is tied. We're going to overtime. Over the rebound for his ninth. 18 points, 9 rebounds, 6 oh, assists from Shane. Oh, oh the chicken! Double time! Miles Turner! Yeah! Welcome to the NBA, my friend! Turner sets the screen. Oh, Whoa. oh, oh, oh no! Oh, no. Right Don't let him throw it down like that! Victor on the depot! Throws it back to Oladipo. Stevenson behind, drives inside! And the foul! Lance Stevenson! And a chance for a three-point play. He just headbutted the Stanton. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Born Ready to Pod podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to episode 14 of the Born Ready to Pod podcast. My name is Chris Cook, and sitting next to me, as always, Eric Hawk, Jake Light. Guys, today a very special guest on the podcast, David Harrison. You heard that right. David Harrison, former Indiana Pacers center from 2004 to 2008. Guys, what were your thoughts? of? Obviously, you don't want to give away too much, but thoughts on the David Harrison interview. What did you guys think of him? Uh, it went about exactly what I expected, I think. I mean, it was, uh, it was serious. And then it, it got silly. It got serious again. Um, 
he was he's just a very interesting guy he has very some great nice stories guy. he's a very nice i really i think after we interviewed him i kind of just kind of sat back and i was like wow that was just a really um good interview um i really thought he had a lot to say he dug in he got loose he used a couple of choice words i loved it i clapped the first with him. time the f-bomb had ever been dropped on born ready to pop are we editing that out no, no absolutely we're not it. we're oh, keeping gosh. it we're keeping it we're bad boys you can kind of say we're bad boys so uh yeah it was just it went about exactly what i expected but just to be a part of it it was it was some deep stuff and i think the best part about david as well is He's not going to keep thing, you know, things by the book. He's, I mean, he's not, you know, he's going to come out and say what he thinks, what's on his mind. He's going to tell you how it is. He's not going to be like some athlete that says, "Man, you know, we just, you know, just the generic statements you would hear from an athlete after the game." David Harrison's going to tell you what exactly is on his mind, and that was the coolest part about him was he wasn't afraid to tell us, you know, details about stories and then you know some other random things as well yeah when you talk to david harrison you're going to go on an emotional roller coaster you don't know where <laughs> you're going you're like a ship at sea and you don't have a compass it's it's crazy we're going to talk about what do you talk about bob dylan bob dylan for a don't second don't give away too much but yeah bob we're going to talk about reference. music we're going to talk about some weed we're going to talk about some other things that are just interesting in the nba in general and his thoughts on everything from everything. So it's, it's a great interview. With some analysis to back up his argument, I might add. Yeah, yeah. So, Absolutely. I mean, it was He's interesting. He's not just throwing out random things. He's yeah. got stuff to back it up. And then, like, some of the, you know, like, uh, you know, theories that he was throwing at us, I was just like, wow. Like, I was just, mind was blown after he was telling telling us those theories that he had. Do you guys think he was high during the interview? <laughs> no. I don't. I think he respected us way too much. But if he was, I wouldn't be mad. I, I mean, he got the, it. Got it was really serious. Yeah. I mean, he did. He held nothing back. Uh, he answered all of our questions, and I feel like he answered them truthfully. Uh, we dug into some of the times we met him um, in our teenage years. Uh, it. I mean, he, he was just. It was raw. Like he, he, you could tell, some of this stuff still bothers him. Yeah. Uh, the way he was treated, uh, you know, by players, by coaches, not always negatively. It's just how he would change things if he could go back now and just whisper in. Uh, number 13's here when he was, you know, mid-20s. I mean, it's just great stuff, very interesting. and The best yeah. 13 to ever wear a Pacers jersey, I, I think. We can all agree on that. You're putting him over Mark Jackson? <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> <laughs> um, another big announcement as well. Today is our first official episode affiliated with Armchair All-Americans. So uh, they had invited us on to be their exclusive Pacers podcast we are now affiliated with the Armchairs Pacers division. So, obviously, we're very happy about the opportunity. So, um, guys, what do you think about our you know our new gig? Um, Armchair, I, I'm pretty excited. I mean, they approached us, wanted us to join their network of a, a stout armchair expertise, experts like we are. I think it's going to be a good fit. There's no negatives at all to joining them, so I'm really excited. Yeah, no negatives. Uh, you know, we did our background. We didn't say yes immediately um, because we wanted to make sure we found the right fit. I, I feel like that was very important to us. Um, we we knew something was going to come along. You don't get to a thousand followers this quick, as many iTunes and SoundCloud views uh, without getting a little recognition. So we knew it was coming. Uh, got T-shirts coming out. Obviously, we're going to be able to put the those shirts on their site. Um, and it was just a good fit all around. Uh, armchairs on the upswing, world the upswing, and uh, yeah, I just think at the end of the day when we took a look at some of the options we had, armchair was the best fit by far for where we're at right now as a podcast brand. Absolutely, um, so excited about that. 
But getting into the episode we got now, next up we have former Pacers center David Harrison. I hope you guys enjoy. All right, guys, today we have a very, very special guest on the podcast, uh, former Pacers center there from 2004 to 2008. David Harrison is joining the podcast today. David, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, so back in 2004, uh, the Pacers were coming off that 61-win season, and they ended up selecting you with the uh, final pick there in the first round. Um, so what were kind of your own personal expectations for yourself going into your rookie season? Well, I have high hopes. I mean, even with uh, so many centers on the team, uh, I saw, you know, pretty much uh, an ability to get some playing time. Uh, the team was kind of built uh, around your base. Most of the pieces around Jermaine were interchangeable, and uh, I thought that uh, I offered uh, the Pacers the ability to arrest Jermaine and also have an uh, option that could be a little bit more interchangeable with them. Yeah, I, I, yeah, big time. I remember, you know, we always are looking up people. At that time, we were, you know, teenagers and just kind of looking you up, and you had some crazy highlights at Colorado, and I, I was definitely looking forward to you getting in there, and I think definitely in the first few seasons you showed – just amazing potential. Uh, what was that like? Just kind of like like we said, stepping into that sixty-one win team. What was that locker room like? Stepping into it, and, and did it meet your expectations of an NBA locker room? <laughs> I uh, I grew up in an NFL locker room. My dad played for the Eagles, right. the Forty Uh So our locker room was actually tame compared to a lot of this stuff. <laughs> but uh, it, it was crazy. Uh, it, it was interesting. When I went to college, my, uh, my older brother was a senior. I was a freshman, and we were both uh, voted co-captains. And we would butt heads on actually every issue, like where where we would sit to where what food we had after the game. And uh, one of the things that, you know, Reggie did very well was, I mean, he ran the locker room. Uh, specifically, the cleanliness level. Uh, when you first get drafted, like you, you, I mean, I'm not from the state of Indiana, from Tennessee. You know, went to University of Colorado. So after I got drafted, I had, I had nowhere to stay. Like you don't get your money till November. You know, I really wasn't that high of a pick, so it wasn't easy to lever money and get it at a really good rate. So uh, I legitimately was storing most of my stuff in the locker. And uh, Reggie comes in there, and just you know, rips me a new one. They're like, what are you doing this there and all this other stuff? You know, he he rode the rookies very hard, but uh, I think that was part of you know keeping that locker room copacetic of you know of hierarchy. Yeah, I, it, like that's important in any locker room. It's just you know every locker room is different. Um, and, and you mentioned in a blog post a few years back that uh, the brawl, the mouse at the palace, drastically changed your life. Um, and you mentioned that you know some of those practices that you had with the Pacers ended in fights, you know, almost on a daily basis. So uh, what was that like? I mean, obviously, you know, I'm not the type of person that's a big fighter. What, what was that like watching that go down? Like, I mean, what was going through your mind? You're a young guy. Uh, fight, fight or flight response kind of kicks in. So you kind of either fight or you floor or you run. Yeah. Um, uh, I, uh, I mean, we were super competitive. Uh, you had people, you know, entering their primes. You have uh, you had a Steven Jackson who came off uh, championship season in, in uh, San Antonio. Uh, you had Rod, who just pretty much had a, uh, a campaign of, of, of almost like an MVP type year. Uh, but you have Jermaine, 
you know, a, another person who's an amazing player. Uh, I mean, you set all these egos in one area, and it just it just wasn't working. Like, if we would have had social media back then, <laughs> it would have been ridiculous. Yeah. Like, it would have been completely ridiculous. Like, you, you, I mean, think about it. I mean, you could have had a periscope of Jamal Tidley getting shot at in front of the Conrad. You know, you, there's or they are the whole you know strip club incident. There was just something every week that just came up. It was never ever, hey, let's just show up and play basketball. <laughs> and I think that was the biggest issue of why we did not win the championship. Uh, we had so much turmoil behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, you, obviously, you being a post player, did any of the post players like? work you over not necessarily in a negative way but kind of just being hard on you to kind of get you acclimated to that NBA practice because I can only imagine it's probably a much I mean not a more strenuous practice but the guys you're going against push you harder was was there any post guys that pushed you harder than normal have to do with you know uh them getting me here and he pushed me very very hard uh the biggest competitor on the team uh, was the Jeff Foster uh, but Jeff and I were friends, in my opinion, off the court. But uh, we were friends, and uh, uh, it wasn't like that. I would say the person who pushed me the hardest or one of them for my teammates was my, my co-rookie, John Edwards. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love John. I mean, we John would we would practice to get together at 2, 3 in the morning sometimes. Like, it, it was, we, we were, you know, would you sharpen a blade, iron sharpens iron, you know, like, like and like, we were just going at each other back and forth. Uh, you know, Steven was, he was big because he was kind of a post as well. When he would score a lot of his uh, buckets, uh, he would get in the block. It would be an isolation play. We would just move the defenders over. And if they doubled, we'd come over and dunk on them. And if they didn't, I mean, Steven was six foot eight, and he was playing against a person who's three or four inches smaller than him and not as strong uh, most of the time. So, that was the thing about Rick. You know, Rick would always find the best match, and he would exploit it. And he would not stop until the other coach made an adjustment. And then he would find the next one and <laughs> exploit it. Like, that was that, – that, I, I love playing for Rick Carlisle uh, in yeah. regards to learning how to, you know, play this caliber of basketball. Yeah, so take us through what it was like being on the court the night of the brawl and also trying to break things up in the stands. What was going on between the players and Pistons fans during the scuffle? And even while you tried to make it back to the locker room safely, you said that changed your life. So just kind of interested to hear what, what your thoughts on that are. Well, I mean, it's, when you look at, like, collective events uh, that, you know, span across generations, you know, within the 2000s, you have 9-11 that, that kind of have this brawl. You know, no matter where you are on this planet, if you speak of this moment, there's almost, I would say, seventy to eighty percent of the people know what you're talking about yeah. that that have seen an NBA game. Uh, it, it it is this common place. So uh, being a participant in that, every time I would you know go for a job interview or you know try to uh, kind of move on past sports, that was the focal point of the conversation. Yeah. Wow, and it, it's not very easy. You know, I mean, because I mean, at the end of the day, I had to plead no contest to uh, misdemeanor charges. You know, it's all off our record. All other things, but those are the things you have to disclose. And you know, you know, coming in 
uh, you know, I'm a former athlete. You're going to read online some stuff about me doing drugs and all this other stuff. And on top of it, you know, I've had some charges. It's not that easy to start the job interview process with that conversation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so, why? Now, I like you mentioned. There's obviously some, you know, judicial things that were going on at that time as well. Things that the average fan knows nothing about, but. I, we still talk to guys that were on that team. We we just interviewed one, and they really and this guy really didn't want to talk about the malice at the palace. Why do you think that's so difficult? Even after fourteen years, why is it so difficult to talk about it? Because I feel like people would still clamor for that. Like I envision that being a thirty for thirty one day. You know what I'm saying on ESPN. So why is it so I, I difficult think to talk trying about? Trying to bake one. Um, I think he's actually. I think Jermaine O'Neal is actually trying to bake one. Um, oh. Well, uh, I would say most of the people that want to talk, I mean, one, one of the bigger uh, med stories just overall on the team uh, is Austin Crozier. And after the fight, Crow was so silent, he didn't talk. And he knew it. He, he knew it was over. They were, we were not going to win a championship this year. And he, he started talking about how, you know, we've re- wasted ready last year. And all this immediately. And all that stuff started clicking in. And I think that's kind of why we had that run, you know, we lost one of our best players. We still made it pretty far in the playoffs. Yeah. So, you know, we were, we were rallying around Reggie and riding that. I, if he would have been able to, if he would have been able to, you know, just get a championship that season, it would, it would have been the most memorable season in the history of the franchise. Yeah. Um, but like I said, you know, history, you know, we're out in the multiverse, you know, the multiverse theory and some universe that actually happened. And then, you know, where's David Harrison's life in that universe compared to this universe? And then you look and you compare, you know, choices, you know, going left instead of right here, going straight instead of stopping. Uh, multiple things you get to do at the age of uh, 36 now. Yeah. <laughs> do you think, do you think Ben Wallace was kind of soft for reacting the way he did on that foul? I, ben wasn't really a big guy. I mean, he had muscles that yeah. looked really strong, but he really wasn't that big. So him and Rod were pretty much the same size, muscle-wise. And, uh, uh, I mean, Rod hit him really hard. Um, and it wasn't just the foul. It was those those two, one of those two were going to be defender of the year that year. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't just that. There was this – this is a thing – the thing that separates, you know, that college player that you thought was amazing to that NBA player that kind of comes from nowhere is literally ego. And that, that's, that's the, the, the uh, I guess, uh, your, your tragic flaw, you know, as an athlete, because that ego is the same ego that can drive you insane. Uh, but at the same time, those, those, that difference between, you know, those players, you know, it's not, you know, they can work the same about the one with the bigger ego is going to win uh, most of the time. And it's, it, it's unfortunate. Uh, that's why, like I said, you have locker room uh, problems. You know, you have multiple different egos all shoved into one room. It uh, making them work together is the job of you know, the organization or the coach. And, you know, after Carlisle left, uh, the coach that came in wasn't there to organize us. He was there to dismantle us. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And as a lot of Pacers fans during that, after that happened, and I was a big Rick Carlisle guy, and seeing him go and the 
the hire for O'Brien, I just wasn't very. I mean, I can't say any Pacers fan was happy about that hire when it happened. So. Oh, I, I, I just that result was they got they got you know Paul for a while. Uh, they they got Oladipo from having Paul. Yeah. Now they are where they are. Yeah. So it, it choices like I said, you go left, you go right. Choices yeah. are made. Uh, the end result, though, and having to you know look back and literally see a person who you know you, the the coach position in sports is the most trusted position. Yeah. Uh, you tell things to your coach, you don't tell your mom, your dad, or your preacher. Uh, when you don't have someone in that role that is trusted, uh, it, it causes a very it, it causes a very big issue with it to be. Yeah. Um, so, kind of the last question here about that night there in uh, Detroit. You mentioned in your blog post, and I just thought that this was uh, pretty funny. Was the fact that uh, at the locker room after you would expect you know everybody just to be like you know completely silent about what just happened or yelling at each other, you know, just carrying forward with what just happened. But you mentioned that this is where comedy had actually ensued, and that was when Ron was surprised about the fact that he was going to get suspended, uh, which is mind-boggling to me. And then also uh, Jermaine O'Neal and Carlisle going at each other. So can you kind of explain to us what that was like, uh, being in that locker room after that moment? So we get back in the locker room, and I mean, like we're literally like holding the door shut so people can't get in anymore. Uh, we had to like eject some of the people who came in that weren't supposed to be in there. And this entire process was kind of orchestrated mentally. Was literally so devoted to one another on the court, it was ridiculous. And off the court, couldn't stand one another. It was so weird, like. If we all would have sat on the bench and just watched Rod go of the crowd, we would have had Jack, we would have had Jermaine, we would have had all year. You know, like we would have, we would have been, but we went and we got our teammate. You know, that, that's the thing. We had such a strong bond of playing. And that that's literally was what Carlisle was forging in those practices. You know, that, that it was get it all out here and then let's go win the games. And, you know, we, we, we were good, you know, from one to, 15, we were good. Um, but um, circling back to what you actually asked, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the problem with, uh, the problem with, like I say, looking back and reflecting, um, you kind of, you get uh, emotional towards, you know, the loss. And the, 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 the loss of what was there was a very, 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 very core, a, a very valuable core group of people that cared a lot for one another, literally on the court. But then yeah. off the court, it was a different story. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite, it was quite the situation there. Um, and the next night, you guys had to, you guys had to come back. And you, you played the Magic at home. Um, and due to this, that was my favorite game of my professional yeah, career. I know it, yeah. Due to the suspensions and injuries on the team, you guys only had six guys, and you mentioned that this was like your greatest NBA moment, and you guys received a standing ovation from the crowd um, after almost pulling out that W. Um, I was actually at that game. It was, it was awesome. It was awesome. You ended up playing 44 minutes. Uh, so tell us what that was like. 
I mean, what was that like playing 44 minutes the night after the brawl? I mean, it, not even 24 hours have passed. Well, I played some the night before. You know, I think I had like six points and a few rebounds. It was all on bit. And that was the thing. Like, Jamal was just eating bit up. He's a rookie, Ben. How are you the rookie? How are you the defensive player of the year? A rookie doing you like this. And like, uh, so the next night, uh, I was about to get in trouble for what I did uh, uh, later on. And so I know this. And so I'm just sitting in the locker, and Rick knows this. And Rick has a decision whether to play me or not, and he decides to play me. And, like, still to this day, every time I run across my thank him for letting me play that night. I just simply because it, 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 I played 44 minutes. I've never played that long in any contest <laughs> in my life before that. Yeah, I got to play against the number one draft pick. I was the last draft pick. And I got to show that I was, in my opinion, on, on par or on caliber with the number one pick of the draft. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a great opportunity. And, like, like I said, it was my favorite game. Uh this one, and then uh, in my CBA career, when uh, when we won the championship in Dongguan, uh, played against uh, Big Batir, uh, which is crazy because he has an yeah. NBA ring. Awesome. Uh, but uh, those two games uh, have, have been my, my two most favorite professional games I ever played. Yeah. Well, just taking a look at the box score that night, I mean, you had, like you said, you played 44 minutes, uh, 19 points, eight boards. Three blocks and two steals. That's a heck of a night. I, I, it's a good night <laughs> for a rookie. Exactly, twenty ninth pick. I wasn't supposed to be. I wasn't even supposed. To, yeah, I got to play. And I, was, I got to play against you know the Orlando Magic at the first pick. So, like I said, it, uh, you know things will happen differently. Yeah, and your buddy John Edwards chipped in fifteen minutes as well. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> That was the thing. When John would come in, I would still wouldn't go out. <laughs> <laughs> and, we got to, and that was the fun thing. We got to play. And, the, like, there, there's this movie called Jarhead. And the guy just constantly trains to do something over and over and over again. And then it never happens. And that's kind of what uh, my next three years turned into. Yeah. You know, like every, every year I'm literally killing myself to... You know, meet these body index mass goals, and I, I'm a really big person. I play football. I'm a, like I have muscles. Like they want me to be like a lean little ballerina, and that's not me. Yeah. And it's like, like it. But I'm I'm trying, and you know, it was just, just, it was just like I said, there was a lot. Well, hey, I did see uh, you posted a video a couple of days. I think on your birthday, you were dunking. Oh yeah, I can still get up there. <laughs> I love it. Um, your former teammate at Colorado and former Pacer, actually, Chris Copeland, um, he was quoted as saying he never felt more helpless trying to guard somebody than when he was trying to guard you. Um, and in college, you were pretty much unbelievable. So uh, as you look back at your NBA career now, is there anything that you've learned since or that you would have done differently if you were able to kind of go back in time given the opportunity? <laughs> um, don't. <laughs> Try to change the world. Uh, just shut the hell up and play basketball, I guess. All right. I mean, how hard is that, though? Because that's, I mean, if that's your natural instinct to try to change, I mean, as you just put it, change the world, how hard is it to keep your mouth shut and just not be yourself? I mean. It, it's, I, I failed at that. 
Yeah. Uh, it's very hard. Um, I, I I went to school. I was homeschooled until uh, until uh, third grade, and then I went to these these schools called magnet schools down in Tennessee, and then I went to a private school, Broadway Academy. My mother, she she went to the Vanderbilt University, the you know nice prestigious university. My father went there, uh, and they valued education, and I. I truly entered the education system as a student. I wanted to learn things I did. And one of the things I did learn was history. And the truest statements ever is history. Like, you know, evil happens when good men fail to act. And it just felt like at that time of my life, no one is standing up for anything. Everybody is just, I mean, <laughs> you know, we're in this political climate 10 years later. It's really funny. Uh, what I got suspended for is legal, but, like, in that course of time, we're here. And it's like, I, I just, it's just, it's, it's just really, it's frustrating um, just being, you know, detached from being able to try to do anything, you know. You know, my, my days are now consisted of me attempting to make enough money to pay my rent and my power bill and feed myself and things like that. I, it, when I had the time, um, I wanted to help, and I truly did. And I didn't know how to do it other than just kind of rebel against what I know wasn't real. And one of the things that I felt wasn't real was the prohibition of THC. And so, you know, I went to the University of Colorado. I mean, honestly, I literally didn't know weed was illegal until I got here. It's, it's, I just saw it as a way that has just incarcerated so many young people, so many minorities, cost so much money. And, you know, at that time, we were facing a credit downgrade. We couldn't be able to pay our bills, but we're going to lock people up. Yeah. You know, for, for having plants and like, I, I, you know, the NFL players are kneeling and all that other stuff. You know, there's there's a lot of people that are you know standing up and trying to use their platform to you know, put the light on the things that they feel need to change. And I, I really, really, really respect any athlete like you know Colin Kaepernick that will yeah pretty much jump on a grenade because I mean I, I jumped on a grenade and I, no one asked me. You know, yeah, I think he did the same thing. He didn't know it, but um, it's, uh, like I said, it, it's, it's it's frustrating. You know, wanting to, you know, be. I um, um, I, I have eleven brothers and sisters, and one of wow. them passed away in 2016. And you know, financially, you know, I did all I could, but I couldn't help. And I could have helped more if I didn't, you know, smoke pot. And then, you know, I, I kind of came to the conclusion, not like it's my fault, but, you know, there's consequences to my actions that extend well beyond me. And yeah. that was the first time I kind of felt, um, you know, a lot of regret for mm-hmm. for what I did. Obviously, since your playing career, marijuana has become a lot more acceptable and even legal in most states now, or not most, but a lot. Um, but there's still a long way to go. Al Arrington had an interview with David Stern about this recently. Uh, what were some of your thoughts after watching the interview, and were you shocked that Stern had suddenly uh, a change of heart regarding marijuana? 
there's a one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs called Tears of Rage. And like, I mean, you can, you know, if you've ever heard it, but if you listen to it, like it, it, it's, you know, someone who's filled, betrayed and let down. Um, it's kind of the theme and message behind, you know, the song he's singing. And I, I, I see that every one of my friends send me this, that interview. And I watched it multiple times and it, it legitimately sent me in rage. I, I was, I, that day I was at the, I, I try, I was, I was literally, I, I went to a rage. I, I, I was angry um, that, you know, the man that literally persecuted me um, would sit there and say the words that I used um, as my reason for my, you know, actions, um, as a reason why he later changed his mind. And it's not like, and he had, I think he attributed to like Sanjay Krupa or something like that, the doctor. So, yeah. like I said, like, maybe if I had a PhD, he would have listened to me. I don't know. But, like, um, you know, the NBA is so inspirational to to that community, to, to the community that's negatively affected by THC. You know, the young, the minorities. I mean, it's a global sport now. And I, and I, I just, I, I think that the, the stance that I was taking was not good for the business model. Um, the business model is not uh, increased by the NBA doing this. So why would it? You know what I mean? Um, and I think that's where Stern stood. You know, that was his job. But, you know, there's there's ways around it. And, and, I, and I literally was not the only player on my team. I wasn't the only player in the NBA smoking weed. And I wasn't the only player failing tests. You know, the day I got suspended was magically the same day that Barry Bonds uh, uh, got suspended. I think other leagues did, too. It was almost just like, hey, let's just throw this guy out there. Like, screw this guy. And that's literally, I mean, I, I was I, sitting in a bar in the Phoenix airport, and there's these guys in suits, and they're sitting there in the bar, and he started going, oh, look at this jackass. Oh, this fucking idiot. And I was just like, he's like, oh, you know, I just got smoking weed. What a fucking idiot, you know. And I'm just sitting there. That's why I would love to just walk down there and just been like, "Fuck you." <laughs> right. Uh, but like at the end of the day, like I mean, that's what I said. That was the perception. You know, you have this. There, there's a concept in politics. It's called the Overton window. Have you ever heard of it? No. no. Not. So like normal perception, and then like outside is like a square. You know, and then to the left of the square is, you know, an extreme one way. And to the right of the square is an extreme another way. Oh, okay, yeah. um, and then further out, it's even more extreme. The Overton perception is if you want to change a concept, you don't start with, like, uh, like say, um, hey, I want to increase the speed limit by 10 miles per hour. You don't start by asking for that. You, you, you start by saying, I want to get rid of all speed limits. You, you go to the most extreme. And then... When someone you know rejects that you know extreme, but now will compromise accepting a more palatable idea, it is a further shift of reality. Um, what is normal, and that's kind of like thing like what is normal is an NBA player that you know that that that, that smokes weed, and that's not bad, yeah. and it's not negative to branding and marketing. So. It's just changed, like, marijuana has been, it's persecuted. Um, when you look at the history of marijuana, 
in the company in the country. You know, you have to you know tie it with hemp. You know, it used to be one of the biggest things we use for industrial products. Uh, magically, it goes away. Um, it gets you know, and then people are locked in cages. You know, for privatized prison purposes, in my opinion. But mm-hmm. um, at, at the end of the day, when when you boil it all down, and what comes out the end, like the distilled product. Um, what needs to change isn't, you know, our stance on marijuana. It's our stance on personal freedom and choice. And that's literally what all this is about, you know, from, from gay rights to, to this, to, to anything. You know, it's just a person's ability to choose what they want to do in their time on earth. Yeah. And that fight has always been in the youth. You know, when you look at mouths, you know, rebellion in the 60s. You know, he had kids dragging their parents into these, like, rooms and, like, yelling at them, like, hey, you capitalist pig, why don't you share money with everybody and all this <laughs> other stuff? And, like, it was, these are kids and parents that if they would just, they would inherit it all. If they would just sit there and be quiet, but they didn't. And that, that was their rebellion. It's not what I'm saying we should do. But, you know, I, it's always been within the youth to change um, because when you get old, you have kids, and it's no longer your life. You, like I said, you know your, your your choices are now extended well past you. Like you can't the the choice of you know I have to pay for school, you have to pay for childcare, pay for you know gas, all the other things. Like those choices, they they kill your dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there, there's a song. Um, it's like life for a living. Or uh, you better live, or you're better off dead. I don't know who really sings it. I heard it after my sister died. They really stuck with me. And then it, um, I mean, he starts talking about uh, like you more, like you, 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 you give up your dreams, and you can have them back when you pay off all your mortgages and school loans. You know, um, but by that time, you life's over. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You know, it's it's that's that's the game that I don't think most millennials want to play, and that's that whole "Hey, these guys don't want to work hard" type you know approach to it. It's it's just different now, and I, I really think, like I said, the normal it's a new normal. Um, it's not bad. It's not good. That's history's job to describe that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it. I think the human condition has dramatically increased over the last 10 years, you know, no matter what the current climate is. And that, that's, that's a very, very good place to be. You know, we've, we're born in, in the history of 4 billion years, you know, allegedly, you know, we've been around for 10,000 years, allegedly within that 10,000 years, there's been 40 years to which, you know, a person of my skin color could even participate in society. So it's like, it, it's, we're we're at the precipice of what we're going to be next, and one of the things that I would like to be as a you know a species is is more caring, and that that's where you know Michael Jackson's song "Man in the Mirror." You you be that change. You you care. You care more than anybody else. And like I said, that's where I fell. I I lost myself a bit in the philosophy of it all. Yeah. Um. So you admitted to obviously talking about it here as well. Smoking during the off season, and you know, as long as well as carrying it into the season, um, especially during that 07, 08, 
uh, year that you played for the Pacers. So being a player who's experienced it during the year, um, do you think that this, uh, you know, smoking during the season, obviously some players are doing it, do you think that will help with, you know, like uh, the injuries that are going on, maybe some minor injuries, and then also anxiety, you've been seeing this big push for mental health. Do you think that being allowed to do that during the year without any punishment would be in a, make this, you know, 82-game season easier for these players in the NBA today? Oh, I mean, honestly, it's, like, I'm not a doctor. Like I said, maybe if I was, I would have been less than two and Um I don't know. The medical benefits, I mean, that's what I said. That was Al's approach. I never wanted to say that because I'd never thought that endorsing um, something that hasn't been tested and would affect, you know, the choice of kids. Um, I never thought that was a safe statement. I've always stood just for the decriminalization, just the government back out of it or go after it. This is the thing. The difference is like, what if one day the government said, hey, coffee's illegal and you can't drink coffee anymore. If you drink coffee, you're going to have to go to these places where you're a coffee addict and you're going to have to talk to people every day and introduce yourself with your name and say, hi, insert your name here. I'm a coffee addict. And like, it's like, do you think that's ridiculous? Yes. And I say yes. I think the exact same thing about marijuana. Uh, that like I, I, I think the same thing about other drugs. And if other drugs weren't persecuted, the problem wouldn't grow in the person as large. <laughs> I never had a problem with drugs. People had a problem with me doing drugs. That's the problem. That's that's the thing. I love it. Yeah. Al, Al Harrington said he believes seventy percent of the NBA is smoking marijuana. Do you think? Do you agree with that number? Or do you think it sounds correct? Um, I, <laughs> I'm not here to tell sales out of school. <laughs> I, like I said, I've been in the NBA a long time, and maybe I don't know. Um, yeah. If that's true, then my suspension means nothing because it didn't change anything, and it was even more personal. So, I mean, it, it, it's. It is, like I said, I, I don't know. Um, I can just speak from my actions. Yeah, I just, um, it's just it's just crazy to me, I guess. Like you mentioned, David Stern, he's he was just a very different commissioner. Obviously, I don't know if you know the new commissioner personally. Uh, he seems a little more progressive. Do you think that's fair to say? Oh, yeah. I think the in a, I mean, just look how they handled <clears throat> the reason why the look how they handled the protest. You know, um, that that under Stern that would have been like under Stern that would have been like a Gestapo. He would have came in just be like and yelled at people. You know, like it, it was handled differently. And like I said, we're in a different climate. Those types of actions. I'm like the oldest millennial, and I, I had you have to up in like the other system for a while, and like. When you see that those inefficiencies, it's frustrating. Like I said, sitting there, you have, to, you have to try to bite your tongue and tell you in your position to change things. I think it's getting closer every day, but um, we've read a lot about what D- David Harrison you know, is up to these days. Uh, I mentioned to you earlier, I was, I was a big fan of you when you played for the Pacers, but uh, you're the best person to ask. So, what are you up to these days? <laughs> You'll never know. Oh, jeez. Um, I think you have Eddie Gill on. Me and Eddie are in the same business. 
Really? Yeah. You know, it's funny is we just had Eddie on the podcast last week. Well, it's fun. Eddie, it's, Eddie and I live a stone's throw away from each other. I think his birthday is on the 14th and mine's on the 15th of August. Yeah. Um, he, we've all, I, I've, I've been around him for a very long time. I didn't follow him in this industry. He followed me. I think he watched uh, Ballers and just got inspired. But, I love it. Uh, Who doesn't love that? But yeah, that's 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 currently my that's my current profession. Any hobbies though? I thought I saw on Twitter a couple of weeks ago you were at the Foo Fighters concert. Like, how do you keep yourself busy in indie? What are you up to? Like, you know, socially? Like, there's a lot of cool you... stuff to do here. Yeah, there's not. <laughs> we got uh, we got really cool seats. Um, the man named Jim Rhoda, uh, he hooked us up. He did the documentary. Uh, uh, st- st- Studio or Sound City uh, that won the Oscar, and uh, he hooked us up with really, really good tickets. Him and he and Dave were all really good friends. Uh, every time they come to town, it's fun. It's fun to like if you know people that like are in the industries and do that other stuff. When they come to Indy, the seats are normally wide open. Like you know, sure you can have three in Indy, <laughs> no one's yeah. here. But like Asport, New York, never. Uh, so it's, it's, I love being here. Um, I love racing. We, I did the 500 this year. Um, we got the Pagoda Sleetles right above the track. Uh, I mean, like, it's, it's a sports city, and it's a really good place to raise children. Uh, now that you don't have all those cra- crazy pacers running around the street. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so do you ever go back to Banker's Life to, like, games or anything? I've been. Uh Last year, year before that, I went more. Uh, I went to actually more Pacers games on the road this year than I did at Banker's Life. Uh, my travel schedule and games would overlap. Uh, New Orleans, I was at the, the game that got rained out. I was literally there. <laughs> Yo, man, yeah, that was crazy. That was... <laughs> the, uh, the, so we go, the, uh, the guy who directed Jack at, uh, he was there and a bunch of other people and we were just sitting there, but we got, we went out early. We went, uh, crazy that night. So that part of it was fun, but having to sit in a rained out game was horrible. Cause we like, we walked, I don't know if you've been down in New Orleans. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's swampy down there. <laughs> it is. What was that like in there? Like the rain was coming down on the court. I think I was watching the broadcast and they kept delaying it. I think like the game was delayed like over an hour I mean, even just being, like, you know, a fan there, I just think I would get so impatient. Like, what was that like waiting to know if that game was going to start or not? <laughs> like I said, it's a business. They were trying to possible, and they were trying to keep everybody's hopes up. That was the frustrating part. I mean, you got to see a mascot take half-court shots, so that had to be entertaining. Yeah, stuff like that. You know, uh, I, I, I talked to uh, – I talked to one of the guys on the team, and he was like, yeah, the water won't stop coming in. We can't play. It's unsafe. I understand what an unsafe court is. But I was like, round it up. Let's get out of here, guys. <laughs> so I was only there. We we were actually at the bar uh, taking shots of toxic babies, which is a New Orleans local favorite uh, by the time they called it. What's your uh, drink of choice when you go to the bar? <laughs> You seem like uh, a, you seem like a, I, I, a whiskey I drink, like on I the rocks. Whiskey neat. I mean, whiskey and bourbon neat, yes. vodka tonic. But like, uh, I I travel the whole world. I, I, you drink a lot of crazy. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, so you you watched you, you mentioned you watched the Pacers team here in several games. What were your thoughts on that team last season? Obviously, went above people's expectations. Watching them, I don't know how much you followed them, but you went to some games. What did you think about uh, the team last year that they had? Number forty four almost gave me an aneurysm because he looks exactly like Austin. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, like I, you know, like I was. I, must, I need to get my brain checked because Crow's literally out there playing. It was weird <laughs> watching that. Um, but Nate McMillan has a team that has interchangeable parts. Yeah. Um, he has a big man that can stretch the floor, plays defense. Um, and that's the thing, plays defense. So one of the things I noticed was, you know, the leader of the team, Victor, is one of the best players on the defensive end, too. And I think that's just as a custom how Nate plays and how he coaches. Uh, he expects the most out of the best players. You know, uh, he doesn't get to James Harden and take it, take it easy on defense. So it's like uh, I, I had a lot of respect for that team. Very scrappy. Um, what they're putting together for the future, I have absolutely no idea. I think the East is you have Sixers, you have Boston, and then you kind of have a bunch of well and what if. Yeah. So, you know, the Pacers kind of fall in the, the what-if scenario, but what if you get to the third spot? So, I, uh, I mean, it's not a big year for him. Uh, I think it's been a really big year for Turner. I saw online he's, like, really getting into shape and, you know, uh, pushing you know pushing himself. So, very, I, mean, I think it's a very, very positive year for them going forward. Yeah, um, I don't know if you've seen this, but Ron Artest predicted that it would be Pacers-Knicks in the Eastern Conference <laughs> Finals. So, um, what do you think I, about I, that? I mean, that, is that something you could see him saying? <laughs> I, I don't think it would be insane. Um, it'd be kind of, I think it would be more insane seeing the Knicks than the yeah. Pacers, personally. Um, I don't think the Knicks have made any strides towards building around uh Porzingis, uh, but um, at the end of the day, you know anything's possible, especially in the East right now. You know LeBron's in the West, and honestly, this is the thing: if LeBron wins one with the Lakers, you know, in that wild, wild West, I think that would solidify the the greatest of all time argument because he kind of got to ride out the East yeah. years and then just kind of face the West. So uh, it's going to it's going to be an interesting season. Um, so. You were a big guy, obviously. Uh, obviously, I think, you know, you and I had a three-point contest. You're going to whoop my ass in it. You're <laughs> going to drain more shots than I am. You were an NBA player or a college player. But you've seen, like, the NBA nowadays, the big guys getting shifted out of the picture. Now you see more of these, like, stretch bigs, these tall guys that can stretch the floor and they can go out and shoot. Rather than a player like you who was made, you know, you, you pound down uh, in the post. So what do you think uh, – how would you fit in nowadays, or how would you change your game? You know, if you were coming out of college in the last couple of years, how do you think you would have fit in if you would, you know, were born ten years later? If Shaq was a nuclear bomb, and you look at like you know the ensuing arms race to contain him, I feel that I could have been more of a hypersonic weapon. But I came in an era to where you had to be a nuclear bomb to stop Shaq. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I was fast. Uh, I could shoot. Uh, and I, when I went to China, <clears throat> that's the first thing I started doing was doing whatever the crap I wanted, and that was shooting jumpers and 
dribbling, putting the ball on the ground for more than one dribble. You're trained as a big man, like you're some like like intellectually disabled person to like only shoot when the I have a coach tell me don't shoot unless you see color under your feet. Yeah, and I'm like, why would I be looking at my feet? I need to be looking. You know what I mean? Like that's a sight. We were trained, and then you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to heart badly. I'm stern. He canceled the center position being an all-star spot. Right. You know, kind of killed the position. Um, but you know, at, at the end of the day, I was a dinosaur. You know, uh, it, it was a new age coming. You know, but I think I could have adjusted well. I, I could shoot. Um, I ended up. I, I went to China and I proved it. I still. I was bigger, stronger. When you're bigger and stronger, you take the advantage and you go to the post. But like I said, it's like Ming Batir. Ming was huge. I just stretched the floor, and I did. Um, I mean, that, that, that's kind of why I like that game. I, I stepped out of just, you know, dunk it all the time to where I would face up and do more long. Yeah, and they're watching you there for a couple of seasons – uh, I was like 13 or 14 when you first came into the league. I had coined the nickname for you as Baby Shack just because how big you were <laughs> out there. So, oh yeah, I was that or there's probably the Hulk that get praised. But, but like I said, it was about the calls too. Um, the, the like the whole thing like prick me, do we not bleed? You know, there's a lot of crap that if you're not as big, you can get away with. And then if I did anything in retaliation, it looked like I killed you or you can act like it because the flopping rule. Yeah. That's another thing. I would have done so much better in this NBA because there's actually a rule against flopping. <laughs> yeah. You could just fall on the ground. It was disgusting. Like, oh, just fall on the ground. And, like, it, 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 was, it was bad. Um, it was very, very bad. But that was – it, if you're – if you're weak, you get protected. If you're strong, you get punished. And that's kind of how what I've learned in life. Yeah. Uh, well, kind of piggybacking off Chris, I, like like we said, we were you know early teenagers when you were hitting the NBA. Um, and I just remember always asking for your autograph. I don't think you ever told us no. I mean, was that just part of who you were? You just were like a, a guy that cared about his fans? Oh, I... <clears throat> You know what's funny? I, I, I legitimately probably would have jumped off the top of the Conrad um, if it wasn't for the fans here. Uh, after that game, the fans of the city are amazing. Right. Um, you, you can say whatever you want about the organization. You can say whatever you want about the team. Um, but can't really say much negative things about the fans because they legitimately love you if you play as hard as you can. Yeah, And, like, it, it's it was, an, like, it was an amazing experience that one night. Um, and then just seeing it right out, they kind of didn't like <laughs> for a little bit talking about that. But uh, like I said, it, it it was an amazing experience, especially just, just getting introduced to this culture. I know. Um, so I'm going to put you on the spot, all right? This is like, <laughs> I think, 12, 13, whatever it was, 13, 14 years ago, whatever it was. Uh, Jake and I were out at the uh, sidewalk where the cars would come out of, and we would try to stop like players for autographs. I mean, we were big dorks back then. And you had actually walked – you were walking on the sidewalk, and we had noticed maybe your eyes were a little bit red. <laughs> so can you confirm now 13 years later that – and I don't think you played that game, 
were you, uh, you know, partaking in some activities? You know what? The sad thing is it's no. Um, I was probably crying because I didn't play. Oh, actually, now I feel I worse. That used to happen a lot. I lived downtown at a rally tower and I'd walk. And, like, just it was super depressing not playing. Yeah. And I... I I, 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 if my eyes were red, I was probably trying to like what's this point. Well, now I feel bad for asking. Uh, no, that's a legitimate question. You open yourself up for these things when you have, you know, online articles. I, I literally hey, like, this guy's an avid pot smoker. For like 13, 14 years, I've been stewing over the answer, so I had to know what it was, and, you know, now I got now it, but now I, I feel I bad. I probably getting high, like, right after that. Yeah. <laughs> at, that at that moment, uh, I, I can guarantee you I did not have uh, marijuana in my system. You did a Connecticut water ad back in 07. And I have uh, to say, your acting skills are on another level. Any interest in becoming I, a TV commercial actor in the future? You know, it's funny. Because um, I was out in Los Angeles for a little bit, and I kind of got in that world. And people were like, hey, you're so charismatic. You should try out for a role. Like, you could be like a Wookiee, you know, or like the Predator. <laughs> that. And so I, I had no other acting thing but that. And uh, I think it was Howie Mandel's wife. I got, like, her agency to look at it. And they, like, like absolutely not. <laughs> so I don't, I, don't think, uh, I don't think it was well received as, uh, as, 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 uh, as, as I thought it would be. Well, hey, if you ever decide to get into it, you got your biggest supporters right here. You got three supporters. So. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I should make a movie about you know, I should make a movie but uh, don't have the time yeah. alright well that pretty much wraps up all the questions we had for you David uh, we appreciate you coming on tonight really had some interesting stuff to say um, best of luck to you in the future and uh, we hope to have you come back again sometime well, definitely alright thanks a lot David alright hear that that's the sound of change being cooked up in our schools. Each day, school food professionals throughout California are working to make better meals for our kids, one tray at a time. These meal planning, sauce stirring, taste bud training professionals are making food for students from kindergarten to high school using fresher ingredients and flavors kids love. The secret ingredient to better school food in California? The dedicated professionals who are improving it every day. Learn more about how they're cooking up change at schoolfoodpros.org. Grant provided by California Community College's Chancellor's Office.